This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is September 7th, 2023. I'm Scott Delenderboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Guess what, Scott? COVID's real. <laughs> and uh, every one of the teachers at my kids' daycare now has it. And it's great. It's so great because my youngest was starting daycare this week. He was up to an hour a day. Um, and tomorrow's my oldest's birthday. So they get to stay home for the next few days. Yay! <laughs> I can tell you're stoked about that. I mean, credit to my mother-in-law for being in town at least, but yeah, it what a mess. Um, so yeah, uh, healthcare is on my mind, and we'll come back to that maybe in a little bit. But let's talk about today's show. I hope you're feeling well. Yeah, no, everything's uh, going great here, at least healthcare-wise. Yeah, uh, my my family's healthy at least as far as we can tell. Today, we will be talking about the BC opposition parties trying to find their wedges on the government. And Canada has launched another inquiry. We're we're doing the foreign interference, the China inquiry now. This we'll get time into with it. feeling? After the yeah, real, uh, last one, or not an inquiry, but a rapporteur's report uh, went nowhere? We are on so many inquiries since we started this show now. We had the provincial... Uh, corruption money laundering one we had the federal emergencies act one we didn't even really talk about the mass casualty inquiry out in nova scotia and now we're getting a china inquiry although i couldn't if anything doesn't feel like they've actually like dropped down the number of inquiries like governments used to call them a lot more often it feels like and there's outside of the ones they've been pressured into this one the uh, mass casualty commission uh doesn't really feel like they're uh, particularly inclined to call them, and of course the Emergencies Act one was required by law, so they couldn't get around that one. Well, I think the shadow of Gomery hangs over this government quite a bit. I don't think Harper did any inquiries during his time. Uh, there was uh, the Afghan detainee one, um, right. which is also relevant because turns out you can actually do an inquiry when there are classified documents involved. We'll get into that in a bit. First, go to patreon.com slash politicoast, give us some money and get in the slack and have all these amazing discussions. <sighs> Let's start here in British Columbia before we get into the inquiry stuff. There's not a lot happening. It's the summer and end of summer. The legislature hasn't resumed, but the opposition parties are trying to position themselves in advance of the fall sitting. And BC United... It's kind of in a way supported by a coverage from Rob Shaw in the Orca are looking at education as their wedge issue with the BC NDP government, you know, the traditionally strong on public education, former BC Liberals, now BC United are hoping to that this will be the angle that they can bring down the government maybe, or at least like needle them. And I think there's two like things Rob Shaw points out in his article, and then BC United has four points we'll talk about. The one I think is a real 
big challenge is skyrocketing enrollment, which is a kind of evergreen issue in education as populations grow and change. Well, it wasn't always evergreen. There was a period where uh, enrollment was stagnant or declining in a lot of spots in BC. But that's not the case. It hasn't been for the last Uh, like five, six years. And notably, we don't have enough schools for all those students. And it's been quite a few years now with the BC NDP in government. And one of their big promises was to build more schools and to end the portables in Surrey, as I recall, and to get that Olympic Village school built and complete. And many of these things have not happened. So it it is a good angle, I think, to beat the government over the head with, but you need to come to it from like a credible place so and i agree it's a good angle but i'd also if anything think it ties into like a larger set of problems we talked a few weeks ago about how the healthcare system was having a lot of trouble maintaining staffing levels various emergency rooms uh, outside of the major cities were closing for periods at a time there was uh one where they were looking at uh, you know what to do if there's just no doctors available for the emergency room. Um, there's this. BC Ferries has been having a bunch of challenges just keeping the ferries staffed and running. And between it all, there's you could weave together a sense of kind of BC is broken to to riff on what uh, some of the federal discussions have been, but kind of there are echoes of that. There's a sense that a lot of things just aren't working too well. And in that sense, I think the BC government potentially has the same vulnerabilities the feds do. The main difference being the BC NDP at least has been able to maintain a more kind of responsive or at least on the ball and trying to do something attitude and vibe compared to the federal liberals. But taking it all together, that to me seems to be the thing that could be the first like real you know, hole in the uh, what has been a pretty impressive wall the the NDP have built around their uh, political position. It is actually impressive that neither Kevin Falcon nor Sonia Furstenau have been able to weave that narrative. Like they talk about the different issues, but they don't have that overarching framework for you know things need to work better. Things need to work better in education. Things need to work better in healthcare. Fairies need to run. And just like harping on that. like, And it's not even being creative enough to come up with that because like you say, all they have to do is steal Pierre Polyev's playbook. Like the best work is stolen so often because why reinvent the wheel? Like it's working federally, do it provincially and start focusing on this. And at very least the government because they seem to be responsive much of the time, will make things better. And I'm fine with that uh, if they do it better in their way. But like the other challenge they have here, and BC Greens have this too, is they both lack the credibility at this point. Uh, I think there's still just this like distrust and frustration with the end of the BC Liberal reign. And BC United hasn't done them any, done themselves any favors with like the guy from that era being in charge of the party, even if they changed the, you know, name on the door. I'm not really sure it's a case of the long hate over from the past governments. And 
Yeah, that was absolutely a thing when Andrew Wilkinson was trying to uh, unseat the NDP. I'm less sure it's a thing now compared to just the fact that Kevin Falcon's just not a great communicator. Like you said, hasn't been able to weave together a coherent story on any of this and just feels like a person who isn't hasn't really like connected with the the fundamental frustrations British Columbians have and um you know to once again draw that federal comparison you know some peer parties have generally been able to do pretty well and Falcon hasn't really done that and keep in mind the difference between the uh how long the liberals have been out of power in BC and how long the conservatives are out of power federally it's only two years it's not that big a gap but the vibes are very different between that though so let's talk about the rest of what bc united is talking about around education in addition to ensuring timely and on-budget school construction they have three kind of cultural issues around schools i'm i'm very loosely brought grouping these together uh they're going to ban smartphones for better student engagement in classrooms. They're going to bring back letter grades uh, to replace the vague grading system that was, I believe, started under the Christy Clark uh, curriculum reforms. Uh, and they are going to prevent youth vaping somehow. Magically, they, they, they will be the ones to finally stop kids from being cool. Is vaping cool? Vape, vape no. Uh, I'm sure some think it is. I, I'm making a joke, like, kids shouldn't vape, but, like, Telling kids not to do something or trying to stop it is notoriously impossible. Yeah, well, I mean, the kids aren't voting, the parents are, so <laughs> they're the ones that actually have to be appealed to on this. Like, they're they're all reasonable. I mean, the, the smartphone one's the one I find the most interesting. Right? I mean, the, the smartphone <laughs> thing, you know, they came out when I was in university. It's... I don't have a great sense of what the you know the kids these days uh, to really date myself are like with uh, that, but you know there's a decent chunk of literature out there that uh, you know, social media not great for well anyone, but particularly uh, adolescents. There's been linkages to uh, decline in mental health, uh, well-being among uh, particularly te- adolescent teenage girls, but uh, youth generally. It's a policy area that's worth looking into and engaging with. I'm not sure that uh, like a full smartphone ban's the way to do it, but I could definitely see the case that yeah, you know, when you get to school, that thing just gets put away, and it'll probably on the margins help engagement a little bit. It's something that I know some school districts are already doing, and some schools are already doing, but it's not universal like the way our school system works is we have all these separate school districts kind of toying with things and being responsive to their local communities and i'm not entirely against this approach to smartphones just being up to local i get there is probably an overarching what is best for pedagogy but like i don't know this also feels like it's at the margins relative to many other things we could do to improve our school system but like it's interesting they're putting it first on their education policy and doing it at a provincial level i mean like like you said it's it's interesting but yeah the letter grade one is kind of 
the cultural angle of this. I know there's been, I don't know if there's been polls on it. I wouldn't be surprised if polls showed opposition to the. What I do know is that uh, the consultations the government did on this were fairly negative towards the proposal. So, um, I mean, reading off of that rather than polls, like that's more of a self-selected group than a random poll would be. But you know, you can absolutely see where there's a political opening for it if consultations say one thing, government does something else. You know, it's that's the sort of thing parties will look at and decide to go with. The one thing I am hesitant here is the like risk of educational policy whiplash. Education is one of those things where. You can't change it every year and figure out what works. So I think there is a value to abolishing letter grades because, frankly, they don't tell you as much as like the feedback we are moving towards, which is far more qualitative in nature. Like, hey, Scott got a C in math doesn't tell you that Scott is struggling with, you know, algebra, but is actually very good with um, geometry or whatever they're doing right you can you can start to tailor the feedback a lot better with that kind of qualitative of course teachers are very overstressed with the number of students they have to deal with so that the quality of that qualitative feedback is always limited by the fact they have 30 times 5 students to grade like my partner who is a high school science teacher and but, I also believe they're only do the changes only up to grade 9 so like before Going off my experience, which granted was a while ago, you know, elementary school, they never had letter grade, middle school and high school. So it's really middle school is where they're changing this up. And like, maybe on the margins, it helps one way or the other. It, high school, you kind of need it because it feeds into a whole bunch of like, post-secondary stuff. So you can't really mess around with that too much. But eh, I don't know. It's one of these things I just have like no strong priors on, but I see where the political opportunity the bc united have identified is on it i do generally dislike politicize politicizing uh pedagogy and educational policy like there is a better way to do this and often that is relying on teachers professional autonomy but maybe that's my own bias just having it come down to a partisan culture war is probably not the best for students maybe letter grades are better but having it be partisan is not uh, and reducing vaping, I made fun of it, but you know what? Like, sure, that's not a bad policy. I mean, vaping is better than smoking, but kids shouldn't be doing either. Yeah, better than smoking is an incredibly low bar. So, <laughs> on the healthcare file, the other big—it's barely big news—in uh, the province's opposition is the. BC Green's deputy leader, health critic, Dr. Sanjiv Gandhi, the former pediatric heart surgeon from BC Children's, has announced that he will be running for the party in the upcoming riding of Vancouver Renfrew, which is one of the ones being redrawn, which is where Adrian Dix, the health minister, is currently uh, the representative of. And I'm not a, I don't believe. Dr. Gandhi lives in that riding. I think he's on the North Shore. I'm not 100% sure about that, but this seems like it's a target to line up the the doctor versus the health minister, and he's going to lose. Oh, yeah. No, like, I mean, my top line takeaway is 
the BC Green Party have decided they do not want their deputy leader to be in the ledge because they are putting him in a riding he will not win. Even if there wasn't a high-profile minister in that, that seat would be safe NDP. It has been over 50% of the vote has gone to the NDP in every election except uh, 2001. The last several ones they've cleared north of 60%. It's a it's not Vancouver East, but it's about a safe. Sorry, it's not Vancouver Mount Pleasant. Um, it's my federal and provincial there, but it's a pretty close to being as safe as they come in the province. And like maybe they're going for the uh, you know battle of the titans in the healthcare debate thing. I don't think it's going to matter that much. People, a like the media's so. Um, beaten back and collapsed down to uh, just a few reporters. When the election inevitably comes around, no single riding's going to get that much attention. There'll be... The limited resources will be mostly focused on the uh, leaders' tours. And there are ridings that would be better spent and were potentially a high-profile candidate to flip it. Uh, was it West Vancouver Sea to Sky, I think, was the one they nearly won last time. Like That's the obvious one. It's actually more proximate to the North Shore anyway, and if the BC, if the, uh, BC Green Party wants to canoe uh, put their deputy leader in, where they can actually get some real traction as an MLA, that's the one to do. I think the one advantage this does give, presuming the greens have like excellent candidates they already want for all of their l not i was going to say likely pickups but like dream a, a pickups yeah the, the most the most likely if they have a really good time um is that this in the best case scenario this lets them really harass adrian dix on his record like they can put him right up against and they can be like he's going to the local candidates forums and Dix isn't even showing up because why would he? And it's such a like marginal effect that has, but m like maybe it'll resonate, but it, it feels a little amateur hour, frankly. And I could see that working a lot better 10, 20, 30 years ago. when there, it was actually the, the media resources to cover, you know, the more high-profile local riding contests. But at this point, it's going to be largely shouted into the void that is political Twitter. And yeah. that's not changing anyone's mind. And, like, if you want to have a debate on issues, you don't need to be in his riding. You can have, like, a third party put on a health policy debate, and the Greens don't even have to organize that. People will organize some of those, and that's where you can take them on. And you don't need to be in his writing to challenge him and the party and their record, but I don't know. Good luck. Yeah, it just goes on to like the long list of like weird strategic choices the Green Party makes. And like maybe he doesn't actually want to be an MLA. Well, I mean, that's clearly the implication of running somewhere where you can't win. Let's jump to federal politics. The big news that they thankfully dropped today, otherwise we wouldn't have had much to talk about at all, is the foreign interference inquiry is on. The 
judge was named earlier today, uh, Quebec Appeal Court Judge Mary Jose Hogue. I believe is how I Could read that. Could pronounce the H a little too much for French in that, but uh, yeah, that's on par with it's her a brand. French word. Yeah, my French isn't great, and that's a a name that is one that my not great French is not going to have a good time with. And then this afternoon, they released the terms of reference. Uh, the the big thing in there, I think, being that the deadlines are very soon. The first, there's going to be two reports coming out. There's well. There's going to be a public report and classified report, and there will be versions of that coming out in February 29th, 2024, just just like a few months away. And then another one on by the end of next year, December 31st, 2024. Uh, that first report will deal with uh, interference by China, Russia, and other foreign states or non-state actors any potential impacts, and it will confirm the integrity of and any impacts on the 43rd and 44th general elections. And it will look at the flow of information to senior decision makers, including elected officials between the various elections task force uh, that led up to those elections and in the weeks following. So it's basically just going to focus on the two elections. And then after that, the longer report will do a deeper dive into the capacity of the federal governments, uh, the mechanisms that are in place. It'll make recommendations for how to protect future elections uh, and go forth in that way. I'm summarizing a lot here, but yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. So that like, breakdown made sense. The, the February 29th deadline is really soon for something of this size. That's, I think, the thing that's drawn most of the... Uh, eyebrow raising that has happened on this all of the parties came together and agreed on who was going to lead the inquiry broadly the terms of reference so there's not a lot of fundamental disagreements among the parties which is good and what should have happened at the start back in february of last year or february of this year uh when this was getting going and really uh becoming a major story and the government should never have tried to kind of do an end run around getting that all party consensus and all party buy-in because in theory the the wrong parties were i mean primarily the conservatives but every all of the other parties that didn't win the election in theory and if there was going to be an inquiry that uh, satisfied those potentially wrong parties you needed their buy-in on the scope and who was going to run it and instead of doing that we wasted months and uh burned a former governor general's reputation in the process only to end up here so i mean guess this is good but like jesus how how do we how did it take this long to get to this point and be this long a road i, th I think the nice thing about the timelines here is this clearly means we'll have at least one report out before the next election. And if the Liberal NDP deal holds, we'll have all of the reports done. But, you know, we'll at least have the fact-finding of the last two elections done in theory. Although, I I feel like these could be extended. Like, past ones have had to be extended because of just the amount of work it takes to do to do a public inquiry. We saw, I think, the BC money laundering inquiry was delayed. The Emergencies Act results were delayed. Uh, 
I'd be shocked if they can do this in, what is this, six months? Like, if I was doing one of my, like, work reports, which is largely done by, like, Googling things and looking at FOI data, and I tried to get that out in six months, and it was one of our larger ones, I would feel rushed. And, like, she's got a much bigger budget than me, but... But that budget's also not fully stroked out yet. Part and of also first... has a much more complex task. Yes, and you don't have to uh, get security clearances and view classified documents and figure out what can and can't be put in which version of the reports and everything, um, or even be part of the public process versus the private process and all of this. Um, but yeah, part of the terms of reference is to figure out the work of actually... Uh, putting together the actual budget for this thing and whatnot. So like the first couple weeks to a month, probably longer just because it's Ottawa, is going to be sorting out kind of those administrative stuff before even really diving into it. So yeah. And then there's got to be public hearings on this and private hearings. So what what we're saying is justice, Hogue should start writing the report now so that by the time she has interviewed everyone, she'll have time to have uh, published it and gotten it translated and security <laughs> cleared and published it. Yeah, because that uh, worked out or- so great for David Johnson, writing the report before interviewing uh, opposition leaders. The only other thing I was thinking is just like we said off the top, there have been so many inquiries in recent years, or at least a number, and none feel like they've made a difference. Um, but maybe this time will be different. It's I don't know, it's hard to say. We um this is always an issue that was more important to the Ottawa bubble than the the general public. You know, it's not worthy on the summer barbecue circuit and whatnot. Pierre probably it's not been hammering this issue compared to some of the other ones. That said, this one's a really important one to get right because the danger isn't um anything short-term on this. It's the, if you go into an election with this unresolved and it looks like the government hasn't taken it seriously and this being a lingering question, that sets up a whole bunch of problems in the case of a very close election. And you just don't want to have that being there. So getting a process all the parties can agree on and having it a word one way or the other takes that big risk off the table yeah i like i agree with that i like the thought i just keep coming back to is the cynical one where like i'm actually kind of surprised they got it out because it almost felt by the end of the summer that like trudeau had dragged the puck so long that everyone had just forgotten about it and he had like won the what if i just do nothing battle on this yeah which yeah, could have worked, but uh, but I think if Parliament returns, it, yeah, yeah, I think they were going to drag it out of him on Parliament, so he had to have something. But here we go. We have a foreign inquiry. Uh, it look, it's going to look at all the foreign interference, even though Dan Stanton, former CSIS guy, doesn't get it because he doesn't think other countries do electoral interference in Canada for even though they do foreign interference and therefore like who cares we should only care about china which is such a weird take it is a really weird take especially because before the globe started 
dropping all of these stories back, would it be November, I think, was when the first one came out. Um, this It was primarily conceived of as a thing Russia did to primarily boost right, right-wing parties. So it, that whole thing just feels very ahistorical and not like long-term ahistorical, but ahistorical as of three years ago, which is just weird. It's also like, even if there's minimal interference from other countries, we should at least have an approach that recognizes that others might do it so in the future. Like, the Indian government has interests in the diaspora here. We know that. So, it wouldn't be shocking if at one point they have or will exert that influence. And the United States and so many other countries. So, making it broad, and I'm pretty sure this was one of the NDP's demands, as they said it was, makes sense and is reasonable. <laughs> anyway. That that one kind of felt like the uh, they needed someone to uh, have at least one critical quote in the piece on. It, I mean, they also quote Stephanie Carvin about the timeline stuff. But yeah, no, that feels like kind of wedged in there to kind yeah. of hit the structure of how a an article should, you know, political reporting should be more than a like actually serious take on something. Well, and the opposition parties weren't going to criticize this because they signed on to it, which is good. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, the thing the opposition parties can and should criticize, though, is the ongoing fallout of Bill C-18 as the draft regulations were published just before the long weekend. And... The big news off the top is the government has set a floor of trying to extract 4% of the revenues of the tech companies to give to media if they get subject to this. Yeah, which basically means uh, there's an even stronger incentive than people thought going into this for the various companies to just say, nope, we're just not going to do news on this because at that point they're probably paying more on uh, this than they make on any of the news related uh, content they're having shared on their platform. This is possibly just based on the search related uh, business the companies do and the official estimates were that Google would owe 172 million and Meta 62 million for a total of 234 million. But Michael Geis says if you look at Google's total revenue in Canada, that could put them on the hook for like $300 million. Uh, and either way, they are putting out numbers that are much higher than the Heritage Committee was given months ago during the consideration of this bill. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't it's know. It's a mess. It continues to be a mess. And it, and it's worth also pointing out that this 4% tax would be on top of the 3% digital service tax that is coming and potential liabilities under Bill C-11, the Online Streaming Act. So the government has really just found a way to like milk and squeeze tech companies, which I'm not like opposed to, just like some coherence nope. to it would make sense and like do so in a way that doesn't like create an obvious loophole that screws over so many Canadians or makes the plot, well, I'm not going to say makes them unusable, but. It's not even so much a loophole. It's like, if you do something, we are going to do 
uh, this thing as a result. So people just aren't going to do that. the, The fundamental logic of the justification of this would say that that would be a reasonable thing if if they are apparently worth stealing by posting by having links be able to be posted on their websites, which you know was a bullshit claim, but if you're going to accept that logic, then not stealing would actually be a reasonable policy outcome on it. The so yeah, it's it's incoherent. The the justification was incoherent, how they've gone about implementing it's incoherent. Um the fact that apparently CBC is probably going to get more of the revenue if revenue ever shows up than any of the other uh, media outlets, particularly the, the smaller ones that produce <laughs> the money the most, is also incoherent. Like, every single thing on this has basically been bundled. There's no good parts of the bill as far as I can tell. It's yeah, Geist, Geist points out there's a clause in there that the deals the social media companies work out need to all be within 20% of the average relative compensation of all agreements. And then the commission must interpret that as fair. But this just seems to imply that like, if you have the ability to strong arm the tech companies, or at least come to the table on a more equal basis, you're probably going to get more. And a 20% range does seem to suggest that those smaller outlets, if they don't manage to get in with the big conglomerates, are not going to get anywhere near as much. It also seems like there's not as much guarantee that this will actually pay journalists as opposed to just like line the pockets of whoever owns the companies. So there's just... Yeah, there's some vague hope that... uh... Yeah, the bill was flawed, but don't worry, they will fit in regulation, which... Let's be clear, it's a terrible way to legislate and run a government, but even so, like they didn't even execute on that. So it's... I feel like a broken record saying Bill C-18 is terrible, but man, it is terrible, and every step they've done on this has been bad, and the regulations are just compounding the problem, not fixing the obvious defects. Next up, dental care. We have some news about how it is going to move forward. You went quiet there. Oh, I turned my mic down. My uh, Something was making noise in the background. Next up, dental care. We have some news about how the government is going to move forward with our limited means-tested national dental insurance program, and that is that they are giving $15 million to Sun Life Assurance Company of Canada to start some initial setup costs at planning out if they would be able to run the plan for the government, which is a good chunk of change to uh, do recruitment, technology, and business planning. The uh, government is still in negotiations with, I guess, Sun Life to roll this out. So, I don't have a general opposition to contracting stuff out where it makes sense. There are things that private companies are going to have advantages at delivering compared to governments doing the same. Basically running a transfer program generally doesn't seem to be one of those things. It's weird because big part of the $15 billion that uh, the new president of the Treasury Board's trying to 
find in savings is supposed to come from not contracting as much stuff out to consultants and whatnot. So it's weird there. This is the part of a program the NDP basically pushed on the Liberals as part of their supply and confidence agreement. So it's also just an L for the NDP in the fact that they have further continue the process of contracting out government services rather than doing it in-house like they want. It's just, by all accounts, a weird decision that doesn't necessarily seem to follow from any of the incentives any of the players, in theory, have, or at least what their stated goals are. This makes sense for me from the point of view of, like, the what would the liberals most likely do? I mean... They didn't give the contract to the Kielbergers, at least. Uh, and Sun Life is a reputable <laughs> company. I mean, insurance companies don't generally have the best I mean, reputation, but they are a company that does insurance. And this is now just purely an insurance program rather I mean, than Kinsey's a like. reputable in their field, but doesn't mean they haven't said we want to be scaling back our contracts on that. Oh, yeah. I, like at the I, end of the I, day. At the end yeah, of the this day, isn't this keeping track of how it. they've done a lot of stuff, but it's not in keeping track with what their latest thing they said they were going to do was related to contracting stuff out, which is where the disconnect is for me. Yeah, um, it does really emphasize that the program is not a, it's not like healthcare, right? You don't think about healthcare. This is going to be like, Canadians will have to basically, it sounds like you're going to have to apply for Sun Life coverage that is backed by the government and that is largely paid for by the federal government, which is like the, the least effort way they can do it, which also makes it sound like the least um, secure, like the most likely to be torn up later or scaled back because it's, it's a mess. The program from the start was always a bit like families with net annual incomes below 90,000 will be covered by the plan. And those with incomes close, like there's so many caveats here. <laughs> Yeah, and yet this is the thing the, the government is always pointing to when they're trying to uh, deflect criticisms about cost of living and inflation and everything. Anyway, is it does, any wonder it, they're it, down 14 points in the polls? It does not make me optimistic for the pharmacare that they're supposed to do next. Well, given how uh, slowly, you know, a day late on dollars worth, they've been on pretty much everything in the last couple of years and particularly the last year I would not put any money on them actually having anything ready to go before the next election they are supposed to pass a pharmacare act by the end of this year but if that doesn't actually make pharmacare that just says the government I don't know I don't actually know what a pharmacare act is going to say it's kind of like the child care act that just says the government will do a child care but it's the budget that matters anyway we're going to be really interested in the fall fiscal update also because of housing. And finally, the Conservative Party of Canada has a new logo. This being an audio medium is, of course, the best thing, place to uh, do an in-depth analysis of a visual product. It's, it's a minor it's, update. It's kind of a variation on the same theme they've had since 2003 when the party was formed. It's a blue sea around a maple leaf. This time the maple leaf is pointing straight up for the first time possibly ever. Uh, and there is a blue wave a light blue wave under it it's about as much as i can say about it without you just like looking it up it's fine it's fine 
it's yeah logos the font, the font choice i don't like but it also isn't like offensive it's less Aaron O'Toole, I will say that. Yeah, like the, the only logo that was ever interesting that they, the conservative parties put out was the Aaron O'Toole one, which was, on one hand, not all that different than their logos before, but also clearly ha- drew inspiration from the RCAF roundel. And, you know, that at least, you could, there was a reflection of Aaron O'Toole in that. And, you know, this one's just, a logo. It has a C, it has a maple leaf, like every other logo is being. Maybe it's time for us to do a new logo and we'll do a P and a C, but that's progressive conservative. Those don't exist anymore. Anyway. Well, provincial level, but uh, I think we have already probably spent more time on this than the uh, thing deserves analysis because logos are ultimately inconsequential to politics. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.